0: Uh, it is a wonderful privilege to be here. I want to say thank you, as has
1: already been stated so many times. I want to say thank you to Pastor Hooks. The, uh, work, the risk that you take by putting together a conference like this, it is quite a risk. You don't know who's going to show up and who's not. And so I appreciate very much him being willing to take that risk and to be a blessing to all of us as... Uh, fellow pastors, fellow servants, ministers of God. And uh, Brother Hooks, I appreciate so much your spirit. I really do love it, the way you've worked with me, even in preparing to come here this week. And I thank you very much for that. And um, I want to say thank you to the staff, the guys behind the scenes. You guys have had to work and work and work uh, in a church that has a Christian school, and everything at the same time of the year, you look at your, uh, the back sheet of that bulletin, you got all kinds of things going on, and this all hits at the same time. I'm certain that there's a lot of staff that uh, you'd never admit to it, probably, and, and probably shouldn't. But, um, boy, it's been, it's been uh, long days and long nights, and I appreciate that. And I want to say thank you to the staff. I also want to say thank you to the people. This is not an inexpensive uh, kind of conference to put on. It's um, a invest. It's an investment of a church to put into my church, and I want to say thank you on behalf of Somerville Baptist Church and on behalf of these other men and the churches they represent that you're really investing. It's very unselfish. It's a very missions-minded mentality that you have, and even being willing. He was telling us about all that was being invested in, even the guys going golfing, that somebody stepped up and offered to pay for all the guys going golfing. If you could give me his name, I would sure appreciate that. I'd like to talk to that guy. And I want to say thank you to Brother Paulie. and uh, I love Scott Paulie. I hate the fact that I have to preach after Scott (laughs) Paulie. It's... uh, I can remember preaching Southwide. The thing is that, I think it was that you're, you're talking about and Jim Shetler preached first and then it was me and then Johnny Pope and Shetler really he just it was a it was a powerful sermon much like we just heard and Johnny Pope at the end of it right before it go up of course we all know Dr. Pope can preach. He leans over and he he hits me on the arm and he says well Shane do you ever feel like a piece of bologna between two slices of bread? <laughs> <laughs> Now go get them. That's about as inspirational as, you know, don't take shoes or coin or salute no man by the way kind of inspirational speech. But it is a privilege to be in the conference with Brother Polly. He was a huge blessing to our church. And I will tell you the past few months have, uh, well, almost past year now. It's been almost exactly a year coming up. It's been um, it's it's hard to talk about. You know, Gamble and I have known each other forever, and uh, to even have to sit here and preach to you. the humility of that. It's something you just don't anticipate, but I'll tell you this, this conference has been such a help to me, because a lot of questions that I had, God invites questions. He doesn't invite a questioning spirit, but he does invite questions. A lot of those questions have been answered for me. And this has been... a. It's just been a therapeutic time for joy and myself. You know, you're uh, those things aren't supposed to happen to you. You know, it's not supposed to go through it. You, you know, people's church buildings catching on fire. That, happen, that happens elsewhere. Uh, why us? Why now? At the stage your children are at in life. And the Lord brought me to a place for, I've spent over, over the last nine months, first 45 days, never even had a chance to go home. They took, took us right into the hospital. We thought it was heart trouble and it was actually acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And I can remember the cardiologist is the one who told me. And it wasn't an hour later, the oncologist were there, was there and it wasn't but a few hours later, there you are in this uh, cancer treatment center. What in the world just happened? For the f- next 45 days, you know, they're killing everything. It's not, most of it's not the cancer that kills you, it's the cure. If you can survive the cure. And so there were many tears, there was much anxiousness. You know, you're free, you're traveling, you're, uh, you're pastoring, and then all of a sudden you're locked in this room. And then the infections that came after that, there was over a month spent in the time after that gives you much time to think to pray to draw and i realized in my life what i'm going to speak to you about tonight i realized how far i had gotten from this that i was very busy in ministry but i had forgotten the reason why i was in ministry it become about really basically being busy having numbers I hate I honestly as a pastor I hate now when, when pastors talk numbers because I, I, I understand and I'm not one of those that says that every I understand that every number represents a soul it's just so many times for us it becomes about that and uh, you should talk numbers you gotta know your numbers especially as a pastor but I, I will tell you, for me, it had become something that was very unhealthy. And the Lord's blessed our church in a great way. But I will tell you, if it goes by numbers, you're never going to be satisfied. If it goes by a dollar, you're never going to be satisfied. If it goes by a house or a car or a boat or anything other than Jesus Christ, as Brother Paulie said, it's never going to be satisfying. And so the Lord really brought me back to a place even of my pastoring and as a believer in Jesus Christ that my calling is very simple and that is to love my God with all my heart my soul my mind my body and to love my neighbor as myself he referenced that and tonight I'd like to talk to you just a little bit about surprise by love Minneth Meyer did a study the clinic out in Dallas years ago because it was alarming to them how many Christians were facing depression and anger and bitterness. And Dr. Benny was talking about that earlier today in his counseling ministry. And what they came back with was an amazing uh, deduction. And it was that it wasn't an abuse factor. It wasn't even a time factor. What they came back with is that Christians had come to the place that they were living their lives with such anger and bitterness and selfishness that depression had to follow, that life had become about them just as much as the world. And I will tell you that that has invaded the church today. We are facing more anxiety, we're facing more um, depression, we're facing more even despair than we've ever seen in the church before. And much of this is because we've forgotten why we're here. We've forgotten the very simple fact that we're here to love our God with all our heart, soul, and mind. Yes. And we're here to love our neighbor as ourself. It's God who will build this church. Now, He's going to use His people to do it. But it's God who will build this church. Francis Green's not a famous name. But the person she ran into a particular day was. Frances Green was an 83-year-old widow from San Francisco, California. And one day in the... Uh, mail she received a letter from the Republican National Committee and it was a fundraising letter and it was a nice letter it was beautiful piece of uh, stationery this thick cream colored paper black and gold letter and invited the recipient Frances Green, her name was on the front, and invited her to come to the White House to meet with President Reagan. Well Frances Green never noticed the little RSVP at the bottom that she was to send in accompanied by a $25,000 donation to the Republican National Committee. She didn't see that part. So Frances Green, over the past eight years, had given $1 a year to the Republican Committee, National Committee. So she just assumed that this invitation was because of her $8 investment into the Republican Party. She was ecstatic. She didn't have any money, she was on a fixed income, so Frances Green, uh, Peggy Noonan writes this in her book, Character Above All. Uh, Frances Green could not afford a plane trip from San Francisco, so she had to buy a, uh, a train ticket. It took her four days. She could not afford a sleeper, so she sat in coach all four days of the trip. What was amazing about this is that she only had one outfit that she could carry and that was the one she was wearing. And the outfit was a white uh, kind of knitted hat with white netting on the front. It was a white dress that had yellowed with age. It was white stockings. It was white patent leather shoes and a white patent leather purse. For four days she had been traveling that way. On the fourth day, it was the day that she was supposed to be there. She shows up at the White House. She stands in line with the other people that had received the same letter. Finally, when she gets to the front of the line, uh, she, they, the guard there asks for name, her name, and this is pre-9-11 days, so you understand. And he asks for the name, and she says Francis Green. He looked at his list there on the clipboard, and he kind of made a scowl, and he goes, could you tell me your name again? And she goes, it's Francis Green. Ma'am, I'm sorry, but I don't see your name on the list. And she goes, oh, no, 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 no. And she started reaching her purse, and she was pulling out the invitation. She goes, no, no, you must have made a mistake because I have the invitation. He stopped her, and he goes, ma'am, this is the White House. We don't make those kind of mistakes. She was crushed. Three people behind her, there was a Ford Motor Company executive. He paid his $25,000. He heard what was going on, so he comes up to Francis, and he pulls her off aside and he asks her what her story is, and it doesn't take him long to figure out what's going on. And he says, listen, Francis, if you will come back tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock, I will do my best to get you into the White House. I can't make any promises, but I'll do my best. So Francis Green found a $15 hotel room that night. She didn't have any other clothes. She was planning on taking the train straight back from Union Station right after she met the president. She shows up the next morning at 8.47 with her white hat, white netting, white dress that was yellowed with age, white stockings, white shoes, white patent leather purse. When she shows up, the Ford Motor Company executive had already talked to Ann Higgins, who was a presidential aide that day, and got clearance for her to see, to take a tour of the White House, and also to see President Reagan. He agreed to see her. So the next day it showed up, the next day when they showed up, Ann Higgins met them at the gate and explained to her right off the bat, she said, "Miss Green, I am sorry, but you're not going to be able to see the president today. Uh, we've had so much going on. It actually was right around the time of Grenada. We have uh, generals coming in and out of his office. Edwin Meese, the attorney general, had just resigned that day. She goes, there's just so much on the president's plate that there's just no way you're going to be able to see him. I'm very sorry. She goes, oh, no, no, I'll see him. He agreed to see me. Yes ma'am. So they take her on a tour of the White House and they show her all the different sites inside the White House. And about every 10 minutes she would ask the question, now when am I gonna be able to see the President? Ma'am, you're not gonna be able to see the President today. I'm very sorry, it's just impossible. Finally, the Ford Motor Company executive looks at Ann he says, Ann, can't we at least, let's just, let's just take her, he whispered, let's just take her by the Oval Office. And maybe she can catch a glimpse. She can just pause for a second, look inside, and see the president. So at the very end of the tour, they walk by the Oval Office, trying to just see if they can catch a glimpse. The door opens. Out come three five-star generals. In come two cabinet members. I mean, everything is just buzzing. And there at the backside was President Reagan sitting at the desk as he was sitting at the desk he looked up just to uh, say hello to the cabinet members that were walking in but he looked past them and he saw Ann Higgins and then he saw Francis Green as soon as he said saw that he jumped up uh, uh, from the desk he walked across all the way across the Oval Office shouting her name saying this Francis Francis it is so good to see you Gentlemen, wait for me just a moment. He walks all the way outside into the little hallway where the secretary is, and he goes, Francis, he took her by both hands, and he goes, how have you been doing? He talked to her like she was his best friend from years ago. Now, I heard that it was, there was a mistake, in those stupid computers, they get things mixed up. I want you to know that we want you here, and I love you. Tell me how things are going in California. They're talking about things that he remembered from the San Francisco Bay Area. He took 12 minutes The United States of America's president took 12 minutes with an 83-year-old widow from San Francisco, California. Peggy Noonan, speechwriter for President Reagan, finishes that whole story with this statement. She said the President of the United States gave Francis Green a lot of time that day, more time than he had. Someone said it was time wasted, but those who say that didn't know Ronald Reagan. He knew this woman had nothing to give him, but she needed something that only he could give her. And so he took the time to be kind and compassionate. He took the time to surprise her with love. Now here we are. I was passing on our way over here, a church sign that said um, the particular church. And then it said, Independent Fundamental Baptist Church. I am Somerville Baptist Church is an independent fundamental Baptist church, and I, uh, I stand unashamedly on that, that is who we are, but I will tell you this, the world does not care. They could not care less about that. In fact, they're not impressed by our standards, they're not impressed by our convictions. The choir, wasn't the choir wonderful tonight? Man, but I will tell you, the world would not be impressed by that. The world has has better musicians than we have. The world has better entertainers than we have. The world has better speakers than we have. The world has better buildings than we have. The world has better everything than we have, except we have a better Savior. So he tells his disciples in John 13, he says, this is the way that the world will know that you're my disciples. It's not by the women being in dresses. It's not by the Christian schools that we start. It's not going to be by, it's not going to be by the uh, preaching that they don't come to hear. He said, they will know that you are my disciples by your love one for another. Amen. Tonight, I want to encourage you in that. That we need to stop working and start loving. The church has left a terrible taste in the world's mouth. That the world finds more love and acceptance in the bar down the street than it does in the sanctuary that we sit in. Those things ought not so to be. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 10. We're going to move very fast now. Luke chapter 10. I was sitting there thinking about uh, Scott Pauli preaching before I did. I mean, that's like going to a steakhouse and eating the steak before you get to the salad bar. (laughs) So the thing I can tell you is, I am the salad bar, but at least the saddle will be good for you. You That's all I can tell you. In Luke chapter 10 and verse 25, there's a very familiar story that we come to. And it's the parable of the good Samaritan. It says, Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? It's a typical Hebrew custom, you answer question with question. And the answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. Christ now gives a positive response. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he, he had to just push it a little farther, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? So who am I supposed to love? Now he's asking a loaded question here. He's asking a question that has to do racially, it has to do socioeconomically, He's asking a very loaded question, and people are listening to this question. They're going to listen to the answer now. And Christ absolutely blows him out of the water. So this is what he says. And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. In other words, he was left as if he were dead. No one could tell the difference. If you looked at him, you thought he was dead. And by chance, there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, do not forget the Samaritan part, but a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said unto him, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. When Christ tells us very plainly to go and do what I just said, we need to pay attention to what He just said. Tonight, we've come to the place where, in the attempt to rest, we need, and I'm speaking to myself tonight, through the past few months, I need to stop dreaming so much about buildings, quite frankly. I need to stop worrying so much about budget. I need to stop being so consumed with this staff member coming, this staff member leaving. The cares of life bear on us. They weigh us down. God has called me to two things. And that is to love Him with all my heart. And to love my neighbor as myself. And if we nail those down, we have nailed down what the Spirit of Christ is in our life. Now I want you to catch... Some of this, what he's teaching him here. Just some principles from the Good Samaritan. Number one is this. We are to surprise the world by love. By loving those who are getting what they deserve. We love even those who are getting what they deserve. Several years ago, I preached this at Baptist Friends. Dwayne Hitman comes to do a basketball camp for us, and he quotes my whole sermon back to me. And I I was scared when I saw Dwayne being the one to pick me up, and he's done a great job of hosting me. I thought, oh, great. He's going to think this is the only sermon I preach when I go out and about. (laughs) But I think this sermon is so important, and the Lord did lead me to it. It's a strange sermon for this setting, but I think it's a very important sermon for this setting because we get so sidetracked by being busy in ministry that we forget what ministry really is. He says, you love even those who don't deserve our love who are getting what they deserve. Why, why am I saying this? I'll tell you why I'm saying this. From Jerusalem to Jericho as a couple of years ago our pastoral staff all went together with this pastors group and I went with the, the, the uh, um, pastors crew, both the uh, pastor cruises and they were on the same trip and maybe some other guys in here were on that trip. And I can remember as we were uh, traveling around that we went from, we didn't stop in Jericho but we were going very close to Jericho, we were passing. It was on the other side of a ridge. We were on the highway, but uh, Mordecai was explaining to us. Our guide, he was explaining to us. He goes, "This there's a path right on the other side of this ridge of hills, and that was the path that was taken. It was their road that was taken from Jerusalem to Jericho." He goes, "In fact, he goes, you know, your story, your story. He called it about the Good Samaritan." He goes, that was on that road. He goes, you know what was funny about that is that road was known as the bloody way. He goes, the reason is is because it's a very thin path. You know, it's nothing like really a road. And it has all these ravines, these crevices that back out of it. It's all canyons. And it was very easy for people that, uh, gangs, I guess that, you know, we would call it today, that uh, these thieves, these packs of thieves, they would get up into these hiding places, they would have a lookout to see these caravans that were coming through, and then they would spot whether or not these caravans were strong enough to be able to defend themselves. And sometimes guys would come, and they were stupid enough to go down this, this route even by themselves. Apparently, this guy either was foolish enough to go down this route by himself, or he didn't bring enough with him to defend himself. Whatever the case may be, he was really uh, very foolish in what he did. I think the priest had this idea. I think, well, dummy, I told you it was going to happen. There were other reasons why, not to touch a dead body, that a priest or Levite wouldn't want to do it. But I think some of it had to do with the fact that this man was getting what he deserved. We told her, you saw the signs coming. Every youth pastor has. Every pastor's seen it. They're getting too close. Parents are not, it may not even be the parents not being restrictive enough. This teenager is just going to be a rebel. And they come into your office one day and they say, Pastor, I don't know how to tell you this, but I'm a child, 15 years old. We have our RU program, Addiction Recovery. I will tell you, these guys, they're getting what they deserve. In Morgan County, where we live, Pastor, they, have a, uh, they allow the Morgan County Jail. We've been in jail ministry there for so long. They allow us to bring the trustees to church on Sunday morning. So we'll send three vans down. Of course, we have to separate the men and the women, but they all have their section in the balcony. Of the church but they'll typically be around 40 to 50 of um, inmates and family members that come to see their their family the inmates they'll come and sit in there and I can remember that uh, there was a person we didn't get hardly any flack but I do remember one person coming up to me and saying pastor but do you know you know what these people have done you know where they've been And they're going to come into our church? Yep. Well, don't you have anything else you want to say about that? Nope. That was how that conversation went. I mean, it was just that direct with it. And the Lord's blessed it greatly. We had two of the, two of the guys got baptized this past Sunday. The entire family filled two rows up in the balcony. It was just a neat thing to see. They brought their friends with them. We've got to come to the place that, that we have to stop being Pharisees. We have to love those who are getting what they deserve. By the way, the Lord loved you in the same way. That's the whole point of the parable of when um, he's going out and looking for workers. That's the whole point of that parable. Whoever he sent the invitation out to, he invited them to the work. Whoever in- came to the work with him, he accepted them. I want to I wanna help you understand, you and I did not find, do you remember the old Squire Parsons song? They sing Beulah Land a little bit. Do you remember the old Squire Parsons song, He Came to Me? I can remember as a nine-year-old boy hearing that for the first time on a cassette tape. You have no idea probably what a cassette tape is. But I remember blaring it in the back room of grandmother's house. He came to me. You should hear Dave. Have you seen that here? You should hear him sing that song. He came to me when I could not come to where he was. He came to me. You did not choose him. He chose you. So, Pastor, does that mean you're one of those? Yeah. It means that I believe that salvation is only by conviction of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. But I believe that every single man Jesus Christ died for, and salvation is available too. Love even those who are getting what they deserve. Secondly, and very quickly, love those who would not be loved by others. The Levite passed him by. The spiritual people passed him by. The priest passing by. I can be Scott Pauly now. <laughs> the priest passed him by. That is not how you do it. I just, it just. That's you hit me. Could I encourage one of the greatest blessings that I found as a pastor? And I listened to Pastor Hooks, and I'm talking to the uh, other pastors here, um, Somerville Baptist. We really took on. We are so out in the middle of nowhere. We used to say that we had one blinking light, but we the light, David, the light doesn't even blink anymore. David passed. He passed her 12 miles from me. He was over in Hartzell, and we were out in the country from all that. And, uh, man, I see all the cars passing by here. I'm just just jealous and envious. (laughs) But to challenge the people, look, let's, let's ask God to do a work here, that when people drive by these buildings, when they see what's going on, that only two words can immediately come into their mind. And it is the words, only God. Amen. May they listen to the preaching and yet look around and say, it's only God. May they listen to the music and may it be quality. We may, they have to come away from it that it's been blessed in such a way that it's only God. And when God's the only one that gets the glory, God revels in his glory. Amen. Now, let me say this as a result of this. I had to change the way I pastored. I had to know everything about everything about everything that was going on. I was the world's worst micromanager. And uh, I, would go into, I would go into guys' offices and rearrange things in their offices. I mean, I just, just an idiot, that's all. And I can remember the Holy Spirit convicting me and he's going and he said to me, "Shane, when are you going to release my people?" And so here's how it began to work. The people would come to me with an idea, before I would put a stamp of approval, yay or nay, and then I would organize how it was going to be done and I would say this is how it's going to work and this is how it's all going to happen and this is going who's going to be led by. When the people started coming to me now then with ideas that that you knew that the Lord could work through or that you were going to take a risk, I said, hey, let's go for it. Now, I would say probably 60% of them have bombed, and that person has to be willing to accept the responsibility of that bombing. But 40% of them hit the jackpot and reach people in ways that we have never been able to reach people before, very unique ways by simply saying, you, as the people of God, Love those who would not be loved by others. I can't reach them. I'm never going to know them, but you are. I'm never going to see them, but you will. And reach them in ways. You, you ask God. Ask God to give you creative ways to be evangelistic, to say this is, I don't know, I saw some truck go by or some van go by today that had free ice cream written all over it. Let me tell you something, I chased that guy down for half a mile <laughs> until I realized... Wait, oh, well, that's an evangelistic tool. I'm already saved. I can't, I'm, I'm going to preach tonight. I can't admit. I was about to admit I wasn't saved, Brother Scott, just so I could get some ice cream. I thought, how novel. I'm not saying you have to go out and buy a van and paint it up and do a wrap on it. that says free ice cream. I'm just saying love those who would not be loved by others. That's the point of the story of the Good Samaritan. Love those who would not be loved by others. Love those who are getting what they deserve. Thirdly, love those who we would consider to be our enemies. It is no accident this man was a Samaritan. And by the way, it's no accident that Christ is telling this story right now because we don't have time now, but if you go back to Luke chapter 9, he was in a Samaritan village. And if you remember him being in that Samaritan village, they did not put him up in a posh hotel for the night they kicked him out of town very rudely very directly and now you come to Luke chapter 10 and who is the hero of the story it's a samaritan now you're starting to see the heart of Jesus Christ here Jesus Christ did not have time to hold grudges he was on life with he was in life with a mission and a purpose the people of God if we're going to rest we Some of us have built up anger and bitterness and this unforgiving spirit for so long that it has absolutely sucked us dry. We could sleep for 36 hours straight and wake up and be completely exhausted because it has nothing to do with our body. It has everything to do with our spirit. And the very best thing you can do is to go to that person before before you go to the temple to worship, go to that person that either you've offended or has offended you and get this settled. Don't wait for your deathbed of saying, you know, I just want to make sure that I get these things right. No, you want to live life with a short record here and now why God can use this. Love those even love those who are considered to even be our enemies. This, look, this is not about us. This forgiveness. We forgive for the same reason that God does. We forgive for Christ's sake. You want to rest? Some of you, you want to find rest tonight? First thing you need to do is make a phone call. First thing you need to do is make a visit. First thing you need to do is sit perhaps a family member at the table and simply say, Either number one, please forgive me, or number two, I forgive you. And I'm sorry for withholding that forgiveness. We love those who we consider to be our enemies. We love those who would not be loved by others. We love those who are getting what they deserve. Fourthly, we love even when those we are called to love are disgusting. The Samaritan was going to have to get dirty. He's going to have to get bloody. He's going to have to get muddy. This was not in his Franklin planner for the day. This wasn't on his smartphone. He, he, was, he, was, gonna have to, he was just going to have to get in the muck. And here we are in our suits and our ties. And there we are in our studies. And, man, we just don't have a study. Now we have a separate study so that we can study outside our study because, you know, that's what the big guys do. And so, we have built ourselves these palaces. On on my door, I have a pastor and has a slide thing. Please do not disturb. I mean, you can't dare get... Now, if you're a family member, you can get to my office in a second. But if not, you've got to go through that office to ever get to me. Now, I'm not saying those things are wrong, and those things don't need to happen. We understand the process and the need for that. What I'm saying is when is the last time, and I'm speaking now to the delegates. We all started at the bottom of this deal. Dwayne and I were talking. To me, we if I bring in Young Bucks anymore, I have been so disappointed in Young Bucks lately that we changed our whole dynamic how we do it. We bring them in for internships, and these boys have two to three years at the most to prove themselves. And you know where we start them? Maintenance. Because if a guy has a problem crawling up underneath a tractor, then a guy is eventually going to have a problem with anything else he's called to do. If that's too small for him, if, if a weed eater is too small for him, if cleaning toilets or having to fix one is too small a task for him, then he has no right to to be standing or sitting behind a pulpit. None. Because he doesn't get it. Here's the problem. We've been at this so long that we've forgotten that too. We forgot that it was Christ who knelt down and washed Judas' feet. We've forgotten how to wash feet. We love even those we are called to love when it's disgusting. And lastly, let me say this. We love even when they're getting what they deserve. We love those who would not be loved by others. We love those who we consider to be our enemies. We love even those that we are called to when they're disgusting. And then we love when loving is going to cost us time and money. This threw off completely the Samaritan schedule, completely. And yet, I want you to understand what he did in today's world. Do you realize he took this guy to the hospital and he said, I'm going to pay this guy's bill, take care of him, and if I come back and the bill's more, I'm going to pay it off even more? Can we adjust this for inflation and let's talk about what we're talking about here? This is an unbelievable amount of money. This is an unbelievable amount of time. The very fact that this guy had this kind of money meant that he probably didn't have the time to be doing this kind of thing. But he did it. That's what our people are looking for, men of God, from us. They're looking for us to love them even when we don't have the time. They're looking for us to serve even when we may not even have the money to get it done. It's just a step of faith. They see us living a life of faith. When's the last time that you and I could say, in this area of my life, it's being completely lived by faith. If God does not provide in this deal, we're sunk. Can I explain something to you? What I just told you is the normal Christian life. That is exactly how God expects us to live, to be completely dependent upon him. That's where our rest comes from. That's where we miss it. See, we think it's us that has to balance. We, we look at those offerings. You, we, we do the same thing. Sunday night, Monday, we're getting those offering reports. We're starting to do the math in our head. We're looking at the mortgage payment. We're looking at what we need to get done, what needs to be maintained, plus what needs to be built. We're looking at ministries that are getting started, how we're going to maintain that ministry. And I can't even... You add a Christian school to this, and you have exponentially grown the issue. How in the world are we going to keep paying staff? If I raise the tuition, we haven't raised it in seven years, but I raise it 30 bucks, you would think that Armageddon has come upon us. And I just can't do it anymore no no you can't I'm telling you that's why at 32 years of age I had a nervous breakdown as a young pastor I'd pastor for six years six and a half years and I thought that I had to do it all and I could do none of it without his strength my rest was always in him and my ability even to do work was in him. And that's who we're called to love. Even when it costs us time and money. It's not really that complicated. It's really not that complicated. I finish with this. And I apologize, Pastor, for going overtime. Doug Nichols was a missionary. He was a young single guy. He was sitting in the middle of... A missions conference when God called him to the mission field he was going to India and he was going to go to an Indian village where no one had been before it didn't take him long to raise his support because he was a single guy and so he was able to get to the field very quickly he got to the field and when he got to this village where he was to go he kind of just did it you know in a way that uh, probably not the wisest way to do it but he said you know I'll learn the language when I get there and so he moved into the village. And as he was trying to learn the language, as he was trying to meet the people, the vi- people, would, they, would, they would laugh at him. They would kind of mock him. It was a very strong, very strong Hindu area. It was about two months that he was there that he developed or he um, got a very acute form of tuberculosis. So they put him in what they called then a sanitarium. And the sanitarium was a lot like this room, but probably half its width. It was circular. If you look at pictures of like old World War I hospitals, that would be the picture. Just a rounded, all white room, um, white wrought iron beds, single twin beds lined up on either side. They put everything, everybody inside the same room. So usually what you went in with is not what you died from because your body was weakened by what you went in with, but you caught what the guy had in the bed next to you. And this is where they put Doug Nichols. And Doug Nichols talked about how he brought in a, a, a whole briefcase, and he had books and pamphlets and brochures and all this, and their particular even dialect of being able to share the gospel. But no one, no one would take one. They wouldn't even take it. He said one of the doctors even crumpled up one of the tracks and threw it back at him, and all the nurses stood around and laughed. They thought it was funny. He said, I'd been in there about two weeks, and he goes, I was so discouraged. God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you putting me through this? And he goes, that particular day, they brought in a new patient, and it was an old man, very anemic, and they put him in the bed right across the hall from him. He said about 2 a.m. in the morning, every night, I would wake up. When I would wake up at 2 a.m. in the morning with the tuberculosis that I had, I would have to sit up on the side of the bed, and it would take me usually 10 to 12 minutes to just clear out my lungs, and I'd have to cough up. And he goes, and the things I would cough up, you really don't want to hear me describe. He goes, that particular night as I was coughing and trying to clear out my lungs, there was movement that that caught my eye. And I looked across, and in the darkness, I saw that old man who had come in as a patient that day. And the old man was lying in the bed, and as he was lying in the bed, he had his arms crossed his chest and his legs pulled up, kind of like a horizontal fetal position, and he was rocking back and forth and back and forth in the bed. And he goes, I couldn't understand what he was doing. He said, finally, the old man, just I guess out of exhaustion, collapsed back in the bed and lay down I, and I could hear him kind of crying in the darkness. I didn't think much more about it and I laid back down and went to sleep. He goes, and it wasn't long, it was before sunset or sunrise, that I woke up but it wasn't of my own volition. He goes, when I woke up I knew exactly what had happened. That old man, whatever disease he had, was so weak and so anemic that he was trying to rock himself to get the strength to be able to sit up in the bed. And then he was going to try to stand up from sitting in the bed and walk down to the end of the hallway where they had a hole in the floor, and that's what they had for a restroom. But he didn't even have the strength to sit up in bed, so he had to relieve himself right there. And he goes, and the stench was horrible. He said it filled the entire hallway. People were cursing at him, as he thought in their language. One of the nurses even came and slapped him, and the old man just laid there and cried. Let, Let me finish in Doug's words. And I'm quoting. Doug said, that next night about 2 o'clock, I started coughing again. I looked across the way, and there was the old man trying to get out of bed once more. I really didn't want to do it, but somehow I managed to get up, and I walked across the aisle, and I helped the old man stand up. But he was too weak to walk. So I took him in my arms, and I carried him like a baby. He was so light, it wasn't a difficult task. I took him into the bathroom, which was nothing more than a dirty hole in the floor, and I stood behind him and cradled him in my arms as he relieved himself. Then I carried him back to his bed and laid him down, and as I turned to leave, he reached up and grabbed my face and pulled me close and kissed me on the cheek and said what I think was in his language, Thank you. Now listen to how Doug ends his article. Doug said, the next morning there were patients waiting when I awoke. They asked if they could read some of the books and the tracts that I brought. Others had questions about the God I worshiped and his only begotten son who came into the world to die for their sins. Doug Nichols talks about that over the next several weeks, he gave out every bit of the literature that he had. And by the end, there were almost 23 patients patients. 17 nurses and 7 doctors that accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. Now he finishes with these words, and I want you to listen closely. He said, now what did I do? I didn't preach a sermon. I didn't give some great lesson. I couldn't even communicate in their, le- in their, in their language. I didn't have any wonderful things to offer them. All I did was take an old man to the bathroom, and anyone can do that. Men of God, we've got to get back to the place where we're taking old men to the bathroom. We've got to quit trying to impress them with our homiletical, alliterated, commentary-filled sermons. We need to speak prepared, but we need to speak from the heart. It needs to have changed us before it ever changes anyone else. People of God, he's not looking for some great work. He's looking for us to surprise the world by love. That is how they will know that you are my disciples. Now let's be about our Father's business because in that, is where we'll find our rest.
0: Thank you for listening to this message from Tabernacle Baptist Church. We pray that God has used his word to speak to your heart today. If you'd like to learn more about the ministries of Tabernacle Baptist Church, you can go to our website, tabernaclehickory.org.